6. And this morning, as we study verses 43 to 49, we will come to a conclusion on the Sermon on the Plain. This will be our fourth week studying Jesus' first prolonged teaching in Luke, what is known as the Sermon on the Plain. And and as you'll remember, this is very similar to what Matthew records in the Sermon on the Mount. So much so that some people think Matthew and Luke are recording the same event. That's admittedly possible. I tend to think, though, more likely that this is a sermon that variations of this message Jesus taught with him everywhere he went. We've already seen in Luke's gospel over seven references that Jesus is teaching, teaching, teaching. First and foremost, Jesus identifies himself in Luke's gospel as the one Isaiah 61 spoke of who has been anointed to proclaim and to announce a message. His miracles back that up. His miracles confirm his message. But front and center, Jesus is a herald. Jesus has a message. And here in Luke's gospel, we have been going through this message. He came down after spending a night in prayer all night. And he disappointed the 12 apostles. Then, if you look in chapter 6, verse 17, he came down with them to a level place. That's where we get the notion of a plain, Sermon on the Plain. And notice who's there. A great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem. So we got two great big groups, a group of disciples and a great crowd And yet Luke tells us specifically that when Jesus begins this sermon, this message, look at verse 20, who's he specifically talking to? He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said. So you've got to bear that in mind. That's critical for what we're going to look at today in the conclusion of the message. This is not a message to those who are on the outside. This is not a message to those who don't know what to make of Jesus. This is not a message for the hoi polloi, the masses. This is a message he gave to his disciples in the hearing of the masses. The reason that's important is as Jesus goes through his ethical commands, if you don't understand that, you may wrongly conclude that by doing these things, namely not judging, not condemning, forgiving, you get to be right with God. Because after all, Jesus says, forgiven, you will be forgiven. Judge not and you won't be judged. But this sermon already assumes allegiance to Jesus. You can see that in the fourth blessing in verse 23. Blessed are you, verse 22, I mean, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. He's speaking to people of whom that might be true. A little later, he says in verse 40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained, we like his teacher. He's speaking to people who would identify themselves in some respects as his disciples, as his students. The Greek word simply means a learner. They recognize Jesus in some sense as a teacher, as somebody who they should listen to, and they they identify themselves in some way as his student. And so I've said week after week, in that respect, the people Jesus is speaking to is, is very similar to the, to the people who are gathered here this morning. Because sure, within Jesus' disciples, there are those who love him. There are those who are passionate about him. There are those who will persevere to the end and carry the news of the gospel out to the nations. But we also know from reading 
the other Gospels and Luke's Gospels, that there's many who defect. In John chapter 6, after Jesus gives a very hard teaching on eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it says, many of his disciples began grumbling and saying, this is a hard saying, who can bear it? And they departed and left. So Jesus is speaking to a mixed group, and there are some here who are regenerate believers, and there are some who you, you may, in some respects, like Jesus, want to hear more of what he says. You're still figuring out where you're at with him, but, but you're not the masses. They're not in churches on Sunday morning. There's some level of allegiance. There's some level of commitment just by the very nature that you're here to Jesus. And so that's a very good fit who Jesus is speaking to in this message and who I'm speaking to now. And we saw that the, the Sermon on the Plain began in, in classic Jewish wisdom literature with, with two paths, the blessing and the curse. Four blessings perfectly paralleled by four woes. And what we saw is that Jesus begins his message by helping his disciples sort out who they are. He's, he's already, in effect, beginning to fulfill the prophecies earlier in Luke. If you remember, in Luke 2.34, Simeon, when he held up the baby Messiah in the temple, said, This child is appointed for the rising and fall of many in Israel and for a sign that will be opposed. This child will divide men. This is a child who will sift, or John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 3, verse 17, said this of him, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the one who will sift the hearts and men of Israel. This is the one who will divide them. And ultimately, all of humanity will land on those who cry out to crucify him and those who worship and follow him. And Jesus is beginning that now. In other words, this is not a seeker-sensitive, feel-good message. It begins with blessings and woes, but hard attitudes. Blessed are those who view themselves as spiritually poor before God. Woe to those who think they've got something to offer Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for only something God can give them. Woe to those who are satisfied and full with what this world has. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin and their condition. Woe unto those who are proud and jocular. Blessed are those who are willing to put up with the revulsion and mistreatment of men for their heavenly reward. And woe to those who treasure the praise of men more than the praise of God. That, that's how it begins, this sifting. What's your heart set? What do you love? What are you, what are you living for? As Jesus is trying to help this large mass of disciples sort themselves out, sift themselves out, see where they stand. And then he moves into the heart of his ethical teaching, and we looked at that over two weeks. Hard commands, admittedly, to love your enemies, to turn the other cheek, to lend without expecting in return. And Jesus made it clear that his standard is higher than the standard of the world, saying three times, if all you do is love those who love you, what benefit is that? Even sinners do that. He's calling them to a higher ethical standard. And then last week, we saw that that love was to extend in mercy, even modeling the Father's own mercy, where we are not judgmental, running around looking for people to pounce on. We're not condemning. We're forgiving. We're giving generously. And then he warns them about choosing the teacher carefully whom you follow. If your teacher's blind, the student will be blind, they'll both fall in a the pit. 
In other words, we've already seen the Pharisees introduced into this text. The Pharisees do not do what Jesus commands. They are judgmental. They are condemning. They do have logs in their eyes. They get mad at Jesus for eating with Levi. They get mad at Jesus' disciples for, for picking grain and, and um, milling it in their hands. They get mad at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And because they, they don't bear good fruit, because they don't obey his commands, Jesus is warning his disciples, don't try to follow me and follow the Pharisees. Rather, don't be a hypocrite. Examine your own life first. And now, as we move into the closure, Jesus is going to do what all good sermons do at the end. He's going to draw it to a close by bringing it to a point, bringing it to a head. Jesus, in essence, is demanding there in our obedience. You'll see that clearly. He's demanding there in our obedience. And the way he does that is masterful. He's going to talk about, and I almost titled this message, it would have been, Daniel thought it was too esoteric, is that the word you used? Pompous. That works too. Pompous. The inexorable connection between being and doing. But you don't have that in front of you. You have Jesus demands our obedience. You can thank or blame Pastor Daniel for that innovation. Um, but that's really what we're getting at. There's four points we're going to look at in this passage. Four points, but they're really one point. If I had to sum up what Jesus is saying in simplicity, it is this. The reality of who you are, what you believe, and where you're going can be clearly and definitely known by the life you live. The actions you take, the fruit the tree bears, the words that the mouth speaks, reveal undeniably, unbreakably, and with certainty, the person's character, their nature, and their future. That, that's what Jesus says here. Let's, let's look at this. He's, he's giving his disciples, he's giving us a way to answer the question, am I a genuine disciple? Am I a true Christ follower? There's a verb in this passage that is overwhelmingly present. It's the verb to do. You see it in your English text in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? You see it in 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. And you see it in verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house. Where you don't see it, but at the same verb, same exact verb, poieo, for my Greek class, is also occurs twice in verse 43. Literally, no good tree does bad fruit works bad fruit, nor does any bad tree do good fruit. So in every example, in, whether it's in the agricultural illustration, whether it's in the illustration of the house building, or whether it's in the central point, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? The verbal emphasis of this passage is on doing, working, crafting, bringing forth. You'll notice the outline follows that. It, it follows a pattern. What you do reveals dot, 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 every time. And that's an important other distinction to make too. Jesus is not saying what you do determines. Actions don't save people. Actions don't make you into who you are. Jesus' whole argument flows the other way. Because of who you are, your actions flow out necessarily. Because, as we'll see, as an apple tree, guess what? In the springtime, apple blossoms come out. And in autumn, apples are on the tree. It's not an apple tree because it bears apples. It bears apples because it's an apple tree. That's crucial to understanding this point. If you don't get that, you will conclude, if I can just 
bear some apples, I'll be a disciple. We'll get to that at the end. That is not what he is saying. This is about revealing what is already the case. This is about demonstrating what is already true. So let's read our passage and dive in. Luke chapter 6, verse 43 to 49. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream broke out against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. And all these illustrations, all four points, teaching the same thing. I'll read, read a commentator summing it up. Jesus, drawing on common sense, common at least among agriculturalists, Jesus argues for the irrepressible connection between dispositions and practices. The insight that grapes are not to be found on bramble bushes or good fruit produced from bad trees, for example, is carried over into the sphere of human character and conduct and interpersonal relations. Jesus could hardly underscore with greater profundity the inexorable relationship between human being and human doing. Jesus could hardly underscore with greater profundity the inexorable, the unbreakable relationship between human being and human doing. So let's dive in, verses 43 to 44. First point, what you do reveals what you are. What you do reveals what you are. That's the whole point. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its fruit. Now, for those of you who've done any sort of planting, farming, gardening, this is obvious. When we plant a garden, when Serena plants the garden, and we go out in the middle of the summer, you don't look on the seeds packet to see what it was. Once it's growing, you look at what fruit it's bearing. That's a tomato tree. How do you know? I see some tomatoes. I mean, this, this is supposed to be kind of obvious. But you can imagine how futile and foolish it would be to say, no, 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 that's not tomatoes. Well, sure it is. It's red and it's on the vine. Like, no, 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 that's, that's corn. How do you know? Well, I got this receipt right here when I bought it. No, the, the, the fruit trumps any other claim, doesn't it? And anyone who knows anything about agriculture and, and farming and gardening, you, you recognize it by the fruit. You know what it is because of the fruit. And no amount of argument to the contrary will convince you once you've seen and tasted an apple, Right? Jesus is taking that obvious assumption and he's going to shift it to some place where we're much less comfortable going with it. 
What you do reveals what you are. The identity of the tree is revealed by its fruit. Now, it's not determined by its fruit. It doesn't become an apple tree when it starts bearing apples. It, it was an apple tree, even through the winter. But when it's time to bear fruit, the fruit it bears is apples. Granted, apples of various sizes, apples of various quality, but apples nonetheless. This picture of, of an agricultural metaphor is a common Old Testament one. Multiple times God speaks of his people Israel as a vine or a tree. I'll give you one example in Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved, my love, song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I was looking for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? You can go to Psalm 80, where God again refers to Israel as a vine. And ultimately in John 15, Jesus is saying, I'm the true vine. This is a common metaphor, this fruit-bearing metaphor. He uses it positively. Nature determines outcome. Nature determines fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. It doesn't work backwards. No matter how many, no matter how many oranges you can staple onto my apple tree in my backyard, it's not going to become an orange tree, is it? And no matter how much good works you try to do, you're not going to become a Christian. The transformation has to happen internally first. God has to give you a new heart first. God has to give you a new nature first. And then, as a new creation, with a new heart, you're going to live differently. So don't, don't make that mistake. Don't trip over that. This, the, the point of this sermon is not go do stuff so you can be Jesus' disciple. Rather, this message is meant to help you identify, am I his disciple? Where do I stand? Where do I stand? Is my salvation real? Is my faith real? That's, that's the point. He uses it with the example of the good and the bad tree. He also uses the example of the thorn and bramble bush. The good, um, nor are figs gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. By the way, also, turn back a chapter or two. I want you to note the absolute continuity between the message of John the Baptist and the message of Jesus. People are sometimes tempted to think John the Baptist was harsh with his demand of repent. Yeah, I want you to see what Jesus is saying, what John the Baptist is saying, the same thing. Chapter 3, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's challenging them on the misnomer that they might claim to be repentant, and the fruit they bear is of a different sort. Same metaphor. Same demand for continuity. Let what you say be matched by what, what you do. That's what he's saying. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. There is no distance between them. They are of one mind on the point. They have the same message. Now let me pause here and say this. Good fruit comes in a variety of sorts. This is not a demand for perfection. May I suggest to you that sinning and confessing, and repenting, and getting up and striving to pursue Christ is a type of good fruit. This is not saying perfect obedience. There'll be different forms of apples, different sizes of grapes. 
But is the fruit overall in your life that you are bearing righteous fruit or unrighteous fruit? And we've got to eliminate what Jesus has already eliminated. We, we've got to eliminate looking to, well, I'm nice to my family and I'm nice to my friends and I'm nice to the people who are nice to me. Jesus has already said that means nothing, no benefit, nothing. He, this, the fruit we're looking at in this context are the commands he has given previously. Because this will culminate, after all, in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? So the fruit we're looking for is forgiving your enemy's fruit, turning the other cheek fruit, being willing to give up your inner cloak fruit, being willing to give to those who ask without expecting in return, being willing to forgive, not being judgmental, not being condemning, not holding grudges, being merciful. That's the fruit we're looking for on these trees in this context. And we've got to eliminate the extent that we do it to our family and friends and the people who are nice to us. Because Jesus has already said, yeah, that, that, there's no benefit to that. That's good. That's good that you do that, but so what? That's the fruit we're looking for. And where we see ourselves striving and trying and growing to bear that fruit, awesome. And where we see nothing, be worried. Let's move on. What you do reveals what you are. What you do also reveals what you treasure. What you do reveals what you treasure. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. An evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And Jesus here, using a metaphor, has pictured the, the inner man. And when the Bible speaks of the heart, it does not speak of the heart the way that our modern culture speaks of the heart. Our modern culture speaks of the heart generally in one of two ways. Either pure emotion. I love you with all my heart. Right? She broke my heart. Right? Or intuition. Follow your heart. Which the proverb says the fool does. But, but our culture is insistent. Follow, you got to follow your heart. And what they mean by that is intuition. Biblically speaking, the heart is an umbrella category for the entire immaterial man. You can, you can do a study through the Bible. People think in their heart. People reason in their heart. People ask questions in their heart. People certainly feel in their heart. People believe in Romans 10. For in the heart one believes, with the mouth one confesses. All sorts of things are said to happen in people's heart. It's the full immaterial category. It's the true inner person. And what Jesus is saying is within that inner person, there's a inner, inner person, there's a treasury. Because the treasury, the treasure chamber, is always the most secure part of the location. And you put what's most valuable, what's most central, what's most important to you in it. And he's saying within the heart, there's a treasury. And out of that treasury, notice the cause and effect. First you have the treasury, and what's in it. And then he says, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. An evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. Get the cause and effect relationship. What you're doing, here's your blank, from the treasure of your heart, you act. From your treasure of your heart, you act. What you do evidences what you treasure. What's at the center of your being? It's really simple. Where you spend your time, where you spend your money, what you spend your time thinking about, what you get passionate about, what you get upset about, what you get happy about, that reveals your treasure. And the simple question is, to what degree do Jesus, his word, his commands, and his people sit in that treasury? Or do other things sit in that treasury? But make no doubt, your actions, 
The time you spend, the things you do, will evidence what's in the storehouse treasury of your heart. You know, people will commonly say things like, you can't judge my heart, you can't know my heart, to which I want to say, neither can you. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? We mistakenly walk around thinking that we can somehow intuitively know the condition of our hearts, as if the Bible doesn't repeatedly speak about self-deception. But here in this passage, God has told us how we can see what's in the heart, and it's not by your feelings, and it's not by how much you cry and how passionate you got during the worship service. It's really simple. What do you do? That'll show your heart. Very next clause. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I don't know your heart, but I know what you said. And Jesus here said there's a connection, right? But we want to say the exact opposite. Oh, I didn't mean that. Oh, I was upset. Oh, I had no sleep that night. Oh, I was in a bad mood. Jesus says, no, that's what's in your heart. I've used this illustration before, but if you take a Coca-Cola bottle and you take the cap off and you shake it up, What comes out of the bottle is Coca-Cola. You with me? Now, sure, the circumstances in your life and the sleepless night and the guy who was a jerk to you who cut you off, that can shake up your heart. That can shake you up and agitate you. But when stuff comes out of your mouth and actions come out of your body, where do they come from? They came from your heart. They didn't come from the guy on the road. It came from you. What comes out of the Coca-Cola bottle was always in the Coca-Cola bottle. Or to put it another way, it turns out I'm the type of person that when I get what I want, I can be kind of nice. <laughs> Do you know any people like that? Because when I get my own way, when I get my three or four cups of coffee in the morning, and when I get my, my the way and I get to do what I want, I'm an agreeable sort of chap. Turns out, <laughs> when I don't get what I want, I'm the sort of person who can snap at people, who can be selfish, who can be impatient. Those things don't make me impatient. They reveal the innate impatience within me. Your circumstances reveal your heart. Your actions draw out and reveal your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't miss this. We blame our responses and our words on all sorts of other things. And Jesus says it is always in your heart. It's in your heart. What you do reveals your treasure. It reveals your heart. From the treasure of your heart, you act and from the abundance of your heart, you speak. Let's move on. Number three, what you do reveals what you believe. This is really the heart of Jesus' message here. Verse 46, it doesn't get any simpler than this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Notice there's a shift in tone here. He's speaking parabolically before. He's not speaking directly. I mean, he's talking to them, but he's not addressing them directly. He's almost making these side conversations. Now it's like he's looking this group of disciples, a large group of disciples in the eyes, and there's no way around this. He's rebuking them. The you is directional. Why do you, my would-be disciples, call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Apparently, in this large crowd of disciples... There are a large number of them who, even though they would identify themselves in some sense as Jesus' learner, as Jesus' student, did not feel obligated to follow and obey him. This is a critical point because this error still exists today. And I, for many years, was a victim to it. I think you've heard this, so I'll try to move quickly. But 
grew up, went to a Christian school, grew up in a home where I understood the gospel. I made a profession of faith. I understood the gospel. An orthodox gospel. When I, when I became a Christian much later in life, there was no alterations that came down to the content of my gospel message. Jesus was the sinless son of God. He lived a perfect life on my behalf. He died on the cross in atonement for my sin. That there's no good works that I could do that would satisfy God's anger at my sin, but only by faith in Jesus, only by trusting him, could I be forgiven. And I, as someone six or seven years old, remember praying a prayer. And then, in God's grace, in his sort of severe grace, God let me see through my actions the true state of my heart. And as I entered my late teens, I became more rebellious, became a drunkard, profligate, carouser, immoral, rebellious. So much so that even my unbelieving friends were getting ready to run an intervention on me. And the whole time, the whole time, you know what I thought I was? A carnal Christian. It's a category some people have, you know. Carnal Christian. It's this notion that you become a Christian first, then you become a disciple later. I went to a one-year Bible institute in upstate New York that taught that very clearly. They'd do, a, they'd do their version of the gospel presentation on Friday night and ask people to make decisions. And then Saturday night, why don't you follow Jesus? I want you to notice something here. In case you've got the idea that you can be a Christian and not a disciple, Jesus is talking to disciples, telling some of them they're not going to make it. Just because you're a disciple here doesn't guarantee you're saved. So let's throw out the notion that you can be saved and not a disciple. This whole warning is given to those who identify themselves as disciples. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? And that, that connection, the connection of this message between what you believe and what you are and what you do was the absolute eureka moment for me. I remember clear as day being challenged. I was at a friend's party, and I liked to do nothing more than to dismantle, I think the, the, the technical term is deconstruct, other people's positions. And so I was having fun. I was, I was tearing apart my friend's uh, worldview. He was trying to argue that money was everything and getting money was everything. And I was having a fun time ripping that apart. Three hours into the conversation, he turns to me and says, okay, then Jeremy, what is the point of life then? Well, I wasn't ready for that. I, I asked the questions here. <laughs> um, and I sort of spluttered out, I, I guess, figuring out what you have to do to get right with God and doing it. And then he just drove it home and twisted. He said, why aren't you doing that? And that just rang in my head. And the whole way driving home later that night, it just rang in my head. And what I realized was this. I think I believe ABC. And yet consistently, day after day, I'm living XYZ. If I really believed it, wouldn't I be doing it? It's the exact point Jesus makes here. The exact point Jesus makes here. Point one, confessing Christ without obedience, is futile. It's a rhetorical question, and the assumed answer of the rhetorical question is it's pointless. It's, it's pointless. It's to no avail. In fact, in Matthew's version, in, in Matthew's sermon, whether it's the same sermon or a different sermon, Jesus makes it even more explicit. Verse seven, Chapter 7, verse 21 of Matthew, not everyone who says to me, here it is, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You get that? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will. They're not saved because they did it. 
They evidence that they've been saved by doing it. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, this is frightening. Because notice, they're not saying Jesus is Lord to other people. They're calling him Lord. In the Greek, it's the vocative case, direct address. Jesus is saying to his disciples, and he's saying to us here, why do you, why do I, why do we, Sunday after Sunday in our songs and on our knees in prayer, call him Lord if we're not willing to obey him? That's the question. What do you think Lord means? It means master. It's what a slave calls his owner. It doesn't mean sir, and it's not some respectful little tip of the hat thing. It's to call Jesus Lord is to call him master. We've seen that. Peter falls at his feet on his face, calls him Lord. Jesus says, come follow me. Immediately he leaves everything. You've seen that. Confessing Christ without obedience is futile. Listen to James 2.20. Do you want to know? You foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. Useless. Why is that? Because disobedience, point B, is a denial of Christ's lordship. Disobedience is a denial of Christ's lordship. And again, what this gets back to is that whole notion of the fruit tree. It doesn't matter what it said on the seeds. It doesn't matter what it says on your receipt. If the thing is growing oranges, guess what it is? And it doesn't matter what you said in your prayer. It doesn't matter what you said when you followed the altar call. It doesn't matter what you said in your songs. If you're not willing to obey him, you don't think he's Lord. It's that simple. Listen to Titus 1.16. Titus 1.16, speaking of false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Jesus said in John 14.15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Guess what we can know with absolute certainty of those who don't keep Jesus' commandments? They don't love him. Oh, but you don't know my heart. I know the word, and you don't know your heart. But Jesus said, if you love him, you keep his commandments. Again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about a striving. We're talking about an endeavoring. We're talking about a pursuit. There's all manner of good fruits. This is a hard word, but it is a crucially important word. There is no category for saved people who do what they want. Paul warns in all of his letters, I warn you now as I warned you then, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we've got whole categories of theology and teaching to tell people the exact opposite. You prayed the prayer, you meant it, you bowed your head, you made a decision, you're good. doesn't matter what happens. That's half true. That's half true. If you persevere and bear fruit, if the shepherd shepherds you, if God disciplines you like a son, because Hebrews 12 says all who go without discipline are not true sons. This is helping us identify how we know we have saving faith, and how you know you have saving faith is not by examining your emotional state. Is this somebody going to read the tea leaves? The way you can tell the genuineness of your faith is by what you do. By what you do. You know, if, if, if someone's in the military and the drill sergeant wants to know how many of the men view themselves as under his authority, he doesn't ask them if they'll obey. He calls the men out to formation and he sees who shows up. Fair enough? 
how futile it would be for somebody sitting on his bunk going, yeah, he's my drill sergeant. He tells me what to do. You know, 10, shut, form up. And he's just sitting there, you know, blowing his bubble gum. Nope. That doesn't work. Those dogs don't hunt. What you do reveals what you believe. I've said this over and over again. Simeon knows I've said it to the youth. You always, 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 always live out your beliefs in a given moment. This gets back to Genesis 3 and the temptation of Eve. I'll lay this out plain and simple for you. Eve has a conundrum. God has given her one interpretation of the tree, the serpent another. One says this will kill you. One says this will give you knowledge and equality with God. Who's she going to believe? Who's she going to trust? Whose interpretation of that tree will she hold on to? We know who she believed. How? Because we know what she did. She believed the serpent. How do you know? She ate the fruit. And how useless it would be for Eve to say, no, no, I didn't believe the serpent. I believed God. (laughs) It'd be like watching someone eat a steak telling you how they're a vegan. (laughs) Yep, no, eating meat's terrible. Mm. Or like watching someone guzzle, guzzle, you know, whiskey, tell you that they're a teetotaler. You wouldn't believe them, would you? In any other category, this makes sense. In agriculture, no, that's corn. Pretty sure that's apples. Nope, that's corn. How do you know? It says it right here on the slip. In any other field or domain, this makes perfect sense. You bring it to salvation in the church, we get really uncomfortable. And we want to start, you, you, don't, you don't know my heart. Jesus just told you how you can see what's in someone's heart. You got to let this sink in. Jesus is ending his sermon here. He's dividing and sifting. Let's move on finally then to the parable of the two builders. What you do reveals your fate. Your fate. We've seen what you do reveals your nature, what you are. We've seen what you do reveals what you treasure. We've seen what you do reveals your belief system. Now we'll see what you do reveals your fate, reveals your future, reveals your final destiny. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose and the stream broke out against it, the house could not be shaken. That house could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke out against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great." Jesus illustrating his point now, clearly, the picture of building two homes. And what we see here is the fate or the final outcome of these two men who have so much in common. Let's look first at the example of the wise builder and then the example of the foolish builder. And then I want to give a few words on what to do with what we've heard this morning. First, what do we see? I think in the example of the wise builder, we see four key elements for true discipleship, true salvation. What are they? One, the, the, the wise builder confesses Christ. In this example, I think both are presumed to do that. He's speaking to people who call him Lord, Lord. He's, why do you call me Lord? The Pharisees weren't calling him Lord, Lord. The crowds weren't calling him Lord, Lord. Only the disciples were calling him Lord, Lord. And he's speaking to them, and he gives them this illustration. So presumably, both the wise and foolish builder have an orthodox confession of who Jesus is. He's Lord. That's good. It's not good enough, but that's good. That's necessary. This man has come to some understanding of the lordship, the deity of Christ. He's confessed him as Lord. It's good. 
Romans 10.9 tells us that if we will believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. This is a necessary piece of salvation. Necessary. Not in and of itself sufficient. Necessary. That's good. This man has confessed Christ as Lord. But notice what happens next. The next verb. The one who comes to me. He comes to Christ. By the way, that, that verb is missing in the description of the, the foolish builder. And Jesus says in, in John chapter 6, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And then in verse 37, Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This man has come to believe that Jesus is who he said he is. This man has come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. He is Lord, and he comes to him. And then what's he do? He hears him. He hears his word. This is important. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was clothed in light and Elijah and Moses were present? Remember what God the Father said from heaven in Luke 9? Well, we haven't gotten there, so you can't remember it, but you're probably familiar with it. A voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Another crucial point. And is, are you here? You're listening to God's word? That's good. Have you, have you come to Christ? Have you called him Lord? That's wonderful. That's wonderful. You're sitting under his word. We, we are all listening to him right now in his word. But notice the crucial distinction comes next. He comes, he hears, and he does. He does them. He obeys Christ. He confesses Christ, he comes to Christ, he hears Christ, and he obeys Christ. He obeys Christ. This is similar to the, the seed in the parable of the sower that fell on good soil. For those are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. He obeys. And notice what happens as a consequence. This is a man, when he builds his house, he builds it according to the instructions. He digs down deep. That's more work. It's harder work to build a house like this than the other way, isn't it? It's harder work. It takes more time and more effort. And he digs down deep, and he builds his house on a rock. Now, we want to ask a question. What's the rock? Now, you know the answer. You, the, the hard word is Jesus. Jesus is the rock, or God's the rock. In this example, the rock and the digging is the obedience isn't it? Isn't it? What's the difference? They both come, I mean, they both hear the word, only one obeys. What's the difference? They both make a house, only one digs down to a rock. Yes, it's true the Bible repeatedly calls God our rock and Jesus is the cornerstone and the foundation stone. But in this illustration, digging down to a rock is obedience. Obedience. Consequently, he is secure in judgment. Secure in judgment. A flood arose, and a stream broke out against that house. I love this. It's not as though this house barely survived. The Greek is emphatic. It was not able to even shake it. True faith resulting in true obedience leaves a person, when judgment comes, unshakable. It's not that we'll just barely get by with our clothes singed in the coming judgment. We will be unshakable because of our genuine faith in Christ and God's work on our behalf. 
You know, one of the passages that helped me waken up to my lostness as I believed I was a Christian, just a carnal Christian, an unspiritual Christian. These are all categories I had. I never tried to justify that what I was doing was good or right. I knew it was wrong. And when people would call me on it, I did... Dullish me one more story. I'm at, a, I'm at a party at University of New Hampshire, and I've consumed so much alcohol, I'm throwing up outside. And as I'm doing that, somebody sees the little cross around my neck that my sister had given me, and they said, are you a Christian? And I looked up with some, some you know, drool coming off my lip, and I said, yeah, just not a good one. And that was a category I had. And I was just, somehow I was expecting when I died and went to heaven, God would sort of say, that's you. Well, okay, come on in. <laughs> And it was a tremendous wake-up call when I read this in 1 John, the same exact point Jesus is making, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. And by this we know that we've come to know him. Now, we should perk up. I want, you want to know if you're a Christian? I want to know if I'm a Christian. John says, here's how you know. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. John, you can't judge their heart. That's what he said. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. And Jesus then gives us the illustration of the foolish builder. Presumably, he too confesses Christ as Lord, because remember, this whole illustration is meant to unpack what he said in verse 46, where he rebuked a large portion of his disciples who would dare to call him Lord, Lord, and yet deny it by their actions. And this one also has heard his word. There's no mention of him coming to him, which I think is interesting. But it says the one who hears, so it's good that you're here hearing God's word. And it's good that you read the Bible and you read God's word. It's not enough. It's not enough. It's necessary, but not enough. Listen to how James 1 puts it. James 1, 22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. See, I think we wrongly assume that every false disciple and every false teacher knows that's what they are. But when Jesus in Matthew says, many on that day will say, Lord, Lord, I truly believe they are shocked at their fate and surprised. The whole point Jesus is teaching is to lovingly help his would-be disciples understand where they stand, help us understand where we stand in relationship to him. We hear the word, but, and here's the crucial point, do not does not obey Christ. Does not obey Christ. That's the crucial difference here between these men. T- turning your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 33, I want you to, just want you to see how God feels about this vividly. And we think obedience is optional. Our obedience will be imperfect, absolutely. It will be stumbling. It will be pathetic at times. No doubt. We will struggle and we will crawl and we will fall down. But if we're his children, we will continue to get back up and confess and repent and continue to bear new, imperfect, yet good fruit. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 30. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of Jerusalem say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word of the Lord comes from the Lord. What word it is that comes from the Lord. So the people in, in the, the Babylonian suburb um, that Ezekiel's in are regularly saying, come, let's go. Let's go hear the word of the Lord from Ezekiel. You'd think that's good. 
Verse 31, and they come to you as people come, and they sit before you. Now, that's a respectful position. You're sitting. You're being a student. You come to the prophet. You, you gather. Hey, let's go hear the word of the Lord. Let's go hear the prophet. And you sit down. But they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, their heart is set on their gain. Behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And when this comes, and it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. God's not a fan. He's promising judgment for this. Ultimately, point four, the foolish builder is ruined in judgment. And again, the language is emphatic. A stream breaks out against it, and immediately it fell. And the ruin of the house was great. He is destroyed in judgment. Destroyed. The house collapses immediately. doesn't even hold up for a moment. He has what I refer to as a cardboard bomb shelter. Zero use. Zero use. I want to help you understand how this works because we are saved by faith. We're not saved by doing things. But faith is evidenced by what you do. Imagine you're trying to build a house by your hands and you're building it about 100, 200 yards off from the, from the banks of the, the Raccoon River. And Phil Hopper comes along. And Phil Hopper, you know, is a, is a master craftsman, skilled, wise builder. And he says to you, son, I know you think you're far enough away from the edge of that river, but... I want you to know that just about every year, and at least once every couple of years, there's so many rains in the spring that this, the river overflows. And if you don't build a deep and solid foundation for your house, I know the ground looks hard packed. I know the clay looks solid. The water will erode it and rip it away in moments. And Phil gives you that advice, and he leaves, and you think to yourself, what does that old hillbilly know? <laughs> I love Phil, and I don't think he'd mind me saying that. Okay. I think, he'd, I think he'd be the first to amen. Um, you think, what does that old hillbilly know? That sounds like a lot of work, and who is he to tell me what to do? I'm going to build my house that I want to build my house. I'm 100 yards from the river. It's way over there. You build on the ground. I ask you, did you believe him? No. If, you'd ha- if you had believed him, would it have saved your house? Yes. See how that works? You see how that works? That's the point, Jesus. Don't, don't get it backwards. Don't get it backwards. He's ruined in judgment because he did not believe and did not obey. Say, so what do we do with this? I want to I take a moment before we end, and I know our time's up, but I want to go another minute because this is important. What do you do if you're sitting here today and you've sized yourself up by this standard and you've looked and said, wow, If it's true that what I do and how I live my life reveals what I am and what I treasure and what I believe and what my future is, I'm kind of scared. Maybe I'm a bramble bush. Maybe I'm a goat. Maybe I'm a child of darkness. The answer is not, hear this, it's not start doing stuff. You don't become a child of light. You don't become a sheep. You don't become a fruit tree by doing stuff any more than fruit trees. I can change my apple tree into an orange tree by stapling some oranges onto it. 
It, it, it needs an internal transplant. What you need if you've evaluated yourself as a thorn bush, as a bad tree, as a false disciple, you need an inward transformation of character and nature. What you need, according to Jesus, is to be born again. Or according to Ezekiel, your heart of stone taken and a heart of flesh given and a new spirit to be given to you. That's what you need. You need to go all the way back to the beginning of Jesus' sermon where he talks about the attitudes of those who enter in as his disciples, those who mourn for their sin, those who recognize their poverty before God. You need to do what the good builder did and come to Christ first for that new heart, for that new spirit. Please don't think the point of this message is go do stuff and then you're a Christian. The point of this message is genuine converts, genuine Christians bear fruit with certainty. And if you're not bearing fruit like that, please don't by your own strength and your own flesh and your own willpower try to fake it. Recognize your poverty before God. Blessed are those who are poor. You'll come to Jesus recognizing your poverty, he'll bless you. Are you hungry for something that this world can't give you? Are you hungry for something only God can give you? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus will bless you if you come to him like that. You mourning and weeping over your sin and your situation, you're seeing the futility of your life, Jesus will bless that too. He'll give you a new heart. He'll put a new spirit in you. He'll give you the desire and the ability to follow him. He'll do a tree transplant, for lack of a better term. He'll take your heart of stone, he'll give you a heart of flesh. And then, with that new nature, you will bear fruit consistent with that new nature. Please don't misunderstand. It's free. Jesus says he's not going to turn anyone away who comes to him. But also don't be mistaken. Please don't be deceived that somehow you can think you believe one thing and live another thing. If there's anything this text makes clear, it is... The absolute inexorable relationship between human being and human doing is a sense in very true sense which you are what you do. And Jesus lovingly gives this to his disciples that they might know where they are. He lovingly gives this to us that we might know where we stand. Let us not look at ourselves in the mirror and forget and walk away. Maybe some of us need to do business with the Lord. Take the time to do that. There is pardon. There is salvation freely offered. Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you. This is a hard word. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear, that we do not rebel at it. Don't let us make the mistake, Lord, of thinking that if we can just do things, if we can just bear some fruit, somehow we'll become your children. Lord, let us enter through the narrow gate, coming to you with empty hands, coming to you recognizing our poverty and our need, receiving from you freely. Oh, Lord God, I know it's your desire that we would bear much fruit, that you predestined us to bear much fruit, your word says. Lord God, for those of us who are in this body who are bearing fruit, help us to continue to bear fruit, encourage our faith, encourage us where we are. And Lord, for those here today who are discomforted by what they've heard, Lord, give them the grace to work through that, not to look away, not to forget it quickly, but to work through it. How great a tragedy to be warned and ignore the warning. How great a tragedy to on that day say, Lord, Lord. Lord, let us not look away. Let us not forget. Let us deal with what we see in the mirror. In Jesus' name, amen.
The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. You are dismissed.